Uh, one of my values uh, is whenever I, I speak is I like interaction, and it's really hard in a sanctuary like this with a, a group like this. And so please uh, email me your feedback. We don't have a uh, lifetime ended last week, and so we don't have the sermon discussion group that meets weekly uh, throughout the summer. And uh, so instead of discussing it there, if you have questions coming out of today, uh, please email me. I would love to, to correspond with you by emails. I, some of them I just I won't reply to. Some of them I will. Uh, some of them I might even use in, in future messages as, as we go along through this series. Uh, but I love the interaction. And so my email is kevin at forestgrovecc.com. Uh, there are also questions to use in your small groups or in your homes or wherever you want to continue the discussion uh, back at the info booth. It's all, they're also on our webpage, uh, forestgrovecommunitychurch.com. And uh, you can find those questions there and, and continue the discussion, the dialogue, because that will be key here uh, for the next few weeks. It, it really needs to be talked through uh, in, with, with where we're going here for the message. We've just completed a series called Entrusted, where we went through the books of Timothy and Titus. And uh, we're now turning that page. And uh, you no longer see the key being handed. You now see this, this image uh, you don't look that way, you look this way. This image up here uh, called Breaking Barriers, uh, Discovering the Kingdom of God, and maybe more appropriately, uh, Jesus revealing the kingdom of God to us, as opposed to us discovering it, but it's a bit of, a bit of both. Uh, the context will be the book of Mark, and so if you have your Bibles with you, which is always a good thing when you come to church, whether it's on your phone or, or uh, actual paper, uh, we are going to be looking at the book of Mark. Uh, in January, I had the privilege of taking a class at Bethany College in Hepburn, uh, our denomination's uh, Bible school, and the professor was uh, Tim Geddert, a brilliant New Testament scholar who uh, has elevated Mark to be my number one favorite book in the Bible, simply because he is an amazing professor and has enlightened this book uh, to me. I, I highly recommend, and this was our first project for this class, I highly recommend this to you. Read through the whole book of Mark in one sitting. If you're a slow reader, like myself, really slow, really slow, two hours. If you can find two hours, if, you could, if you're more of a skimmer, quick reader, you can do it in an hour. And write down your questions. Have a little notepad and just, why did Jesus do this? Why did Mark say this? Why, why? Go through it like that. And it will, it, it is a great, it's the way that book was, was meant to be. Front, front to back, read the whole thing, and you get a much better picture. And then, I highly recommend picking up uh, Tim Geddert's commentary on the book of Mark, because um, he illuminates so many great things. So, I will be, uh, I, I, I Instead of citing him for many of these ideas and thoughts, uh, I'm just going to cite him once right at the beginning and say a lot of this comes from him, and, and uh, I've been immensely blessed uh, by, by his, his teaching and this on to you. One of the themes that comes out in Mark's gospel is Jesus tearing apart barriers to reveal the kingdom of God to people. So first of all, what we'll do this morning is we'll talk about barriers, and then we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, 
and then we'll get into today's application of that. So Mark introduces this theme of breaking barriers right at Jesus' baptism in chapter 1. And he does it by using a word in Greek, schizome. I'm not a Greek scholar. Greek scholars can correct me by email later. Mark 1 verse 10 says, As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, schizome, torn, tearing, and the, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Uh, schizome is, is, is to tear apart, to shred, to, to, uh, um, to rend. Um, in, in Mark's account uh, of Jesus' baptism, he chooses to, to shred the heavens and, and this is a, a little bit of a, a, a picture of, of, of Christmas, ripping open presents at Christmas. Just can't wait to get at what's inside the present. Just shredding it apart. And, uh, and it's a reference that comes out of Isaiah chapter 64. And Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet Isaiah is saying, Oh, that you would rend, or oh, that you would burst forth from the heavens and come down. Israel is calling on God to save them. And here in Mark, we have the recorded fulfillment of uh, that statement of Isaiah. The interesting thing with this word is that Mark only uses it twice throughout his gospel. He uses it once at Jesus' baptism, immediately as Jesus comes out of the water, and this is the start of Jesus' ministry life. You can kind of picture Jesus coming out of the water, taking a breath, and the heavens opening up. I don't know what that looks like. And then, he uses it in chapter 15, verse 38. Chapter 15, verse 37, says that Jesus, as Jesus breathed his last, he's on the cross, and he dies, and he takes his last breath. And then Mark switches, the whole image has been on the cross, and then Mark switches for one small verse, 1538. Uh, and he says, and he takes, he takes his, his audience over to the temple, and he says the temple, is, the temple curtain is torn in two. And then he takes us back to the cross scene and the soldier looking at Jesus. And it just doesn't fit to, in literature. It just doesn't fit to do that. Why would he do that? As Jesus comes up out of the water, he takes a breath. The heavens are opened, torn, schizome. And after he breathes his last, the curtain is torn, schizome. Uh, I believe that what Mark is doing here is he's, he's bookending Jesus' ministry. Uh, at his baptism, it's the picture of the incarnation where God becomes man, and Jesus identifies himself with human, uh, sinful humans at, his, at the baptism of repentance from John the Baptist. And then at his death, it is a picture of atonement, where we are made right with God. See, the Jewish temple had a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, God's place, from the rest of the temple, from the rest of the people. It was this big curtain only entered in but once a year by the, by, by the priest and it had to be just right. By that, that, that curtain tearing in half. The image there is that 
One commentator, another commentator says that God just will not be confined to sacred space. We kind of say, okay, God, this is your space here. This is the Holy of Holies. That's where you are. God's ripping that open. We, we kind of think, okay, God's in heaven. He rips it open. He wants to get at his people. He wants access. He wants his people to have access to him. He will remove any barriers that, present, that prevent people from understanding, from being close to him. He wants a relationship with us, and he will remove any barrier that is in his way. As I said, I, I believe that uh, Jesus' baptism and crucifixion are bookends to Jesus' ministry life. And throughout his ministry, he continues to tear apart barriers, earthly barriers that we have set up that prevent us from understanding his ministry and what his life is all about. So in this series, I'm going to talk about four barriers for the next four weeks uh, that I've found throughout Mark. And there, the, these four barriers are found in any society, including ours today. The four barriers. Today, we'll talk about uh, political barriers. Next week, we'll talk about religious barriers. Father's Day, the 15th, we'll talk about family, relational barriers. And then on the 22nd, we're going to be talking about economic barriers. So before we get into today's topic of political barriers, let me introduce to you what I mean by the kingdom of God. Jesus' ministry life was all about establishing the kingdom of God. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. These are Jesus' first recorded words in the Gospel of Mark. I'll take the next four weeks to help us understand what, what the kingdom of God is. Because... Other than that, in the first half of Mark, the kingdom of God is only really referred to once more in a a series through uh, chapter 4. And it's really misunderstood by his audience. And Jesus says something to the effect of, well, a man scatters seed on the ground. And night and day, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't really know how. And the soil produces grain, and as soon as the grain is ripe, then he takes a sickle to it because the harvest has come. The kingdom of God. And then you kind of get this sense of, what? And then Jesus continues on, well, our kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small, but when it planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, even though a mustard plant isn't the largest. But such big branches, birds can perch in its shade. The kingdom of God. Okay, birds perching in the shade, maybe a reference to people coming back to him. Okay, they might have kind of... Okay, the kingdom of God. Uh, One of the questions of Mark is why in in verse 4, or in chapter 4, verse 11, the kingdom of God is secret. The secret of the kingdom of God. Let me read to you from this this commentary here. I I think uh, Tim says it so well here. Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom, but he is not doing so by going around telling people, hey, here's the kingdom. Instead, he goes around, and now there's a big list here, so pay attention. Big long list. Instead, he goes around recruiting disciples 
teaching with authority, driving out demons, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, pronouncing forgiveness, accepting the sinners, challenging the status quo, vanquishing the enemy, renewing the people of God, and creating a spiritual family. Is Jesus announcing the arrival of God's kingdom? Well, no, not overtly. Not for those who do not have ears to hear what he's really saying. Not for those who do not have eyes to see what he is really doing. But if those around Jesus allow their ears to truly hear and their eyes to truly see, they will discern in Jesus' words and deeds the arrival of God's kingdom. It is not a kingdom established by the political system of this world. It is a kingdom that comes imperceptibly from small beginnings, but with a great destiny. So with that, as an intro, let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to your word, that you would reveal to us your kingdom, your reign, and how we can subject ourselves to you. May we continually become more understanding of you and the barriers that are preventing us from understanding your kingdom. You are the king. Amen. So, we will start today with uh, political barriers, and then we'll do religious and family and economic in the next, uh, next three weeks. So I could start by talking about Rome as a political barrier. They were definitely trying to prevent the rise of any other kingdom and would put people to the cross if they claimed to have another kingdom. I could talk about the kingdom of Satan, rather standing in opposition to the kingdom of God, but that would be a really brief talk in the book of Mark because Satan is decisively defeated. Not much to say there. Both of these were obstacles in the book of Mark, but the main political obstacle actually comes from a Jewish misunderstanding of the coming Messiah. Since Messiah is one of the key words terms for Jesus, I think we should better understand it. And let me explain a little bit further what Messiah means. So let's go right back, those of you with your Bibles open, go right back, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, now there could be a comma there, because Greek doesn't have the, the, the punctuation that we have, Jesus, comma, Christ, comma, the Son of God. So Mark is giving a title, just to be clear here, Christ is not Jesus' last name, not Jesus Christ, Kevin Weintz, not like that. Christ is a title. It's more like Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. Christ and Messiah are are the same word, Greek and Hebrew, meaning meaning the, the same thing. Messiah is anointed one, usually with oil, anointed one, Uh, usually reserved for a king to be anointed 
a priest to be anointed. The Old Testament promise that the Jews held on to was that God would, rise, would raise up a descendant of David whose kingdom, whose, whose throne would rule forever. So without too much background, at the time of, 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 the, of Jesus, of the, of the New Testament, normal Jewish thought would have been that the Messiah would be this great political ruler coming out of the line of David, liberating Israel from Rome or whichever other oppressing uh, nation was, was ruling over Israel, and that the Messiah would provide freedom and prosperity for the nation of Israel. The Messiah would be a powerful, kingly ruler for the people of Israel. By stating in one one of Mark, Mark is telling his audience, Jesus is the Messiah. He's wanting us to know that. He's, Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. But then he goes on uh, to show where they were wrong about what the Messiah would look like. And he does so in a, in a rather subtle way, only a few verses later. Skip down to uh, Mark 1, verse 11. It says, A voice came from heaven. Jesus has just come out of the water. Okay? Skizami, whatever. Jesus has just come out of the water. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, who I love. With you, I am well pleased. So, Jewish first century thought. You are my son. Right away, twigs with them. Right away. Psalm 2. They knew their Old Testament. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2 is the messianic psalm. Good Jews, first century Jews, you are my son. Psalm 2. Messianic, absolutely. Kind of similar. Kind of similar if, 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 I, if I said, for God so loved. Good 21st century, grew up in the church, people would go, for God so loved the world that he... John 3.16. Right away, right? We learned that one in Sunday school for those of us that grew up in the church. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. A lot of us can quote. I learned that when I was, was very young growing up in, in Sunday school. So Psalm 2, you are my son. Kind of, okay, yeah, messianic. Definitely messianic reference there. And then he does something different with the rest. He combines, he, he, he says, you are my son who I love, son who I love. That, in a Jewish mind, takes them right back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is the passage where Abraham is about to sacrifice his one and only son, who he loves. Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, and a ram takes the place. And then, with, who, uh, with you I am well pleased, uh, in the NIV, uh, Isaiah 42 is a reference here. In whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight. Those would have been key passages Psalm 2, Genesis 22, Isaiah 42 are all referenced here in this one line of a voice came from heaven. You are my son, who I love, with you I am well pleased. 
So it's, it's similar if I would, was, was to say to you, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever goes to all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You'd, you'd, kind of, you'd link together a salvation passage of John 3.16 with a mission-sending passage of Matthew 28. Go into all the world. Making disciples. So what Mark is saying is similar to, to uh, John 3.16, Matthew 28 thing of, of, of salvation and of missions. He's saying he is the Messiah... But he's giving the message of Genesis 22 and of Isaiah 42. Genesis 22, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, in coming weeks, but uh, it's the sacrifice of Isaac. It's sacrificing his only son. Isaiah 42 is all about servanthood. It's all about being a servant, the coming servant. What Mark is doing here is he is saying to his audience, the first century Jews. Jesus is the Messiah. But he's servant. He's sacrifice. He's not the big political ruler. He comes as a servant. He comes as a sacrifice. So if the king is all about sacrificial service, his kingdom is all about sacrificial service, And his subjects should be known by their sacrificial service. I'll be talking about this in a few different ways. The weeks are going to tie together. You'll see. The kingdom of God is entered into through service and through sacrifice. The first eight chapters of Mark especially subtly illustrate the kingdom of God. You need to read them all together. It isn't until in in chapter 8 we have Peter's confession of Jesus that Mark starts talking more explicitly about the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 8, the disciples finally recognize, finally confess Jesus as Messiah. But they don't get what it means. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Mark, uh, Peter's favorite, uh, famous confession. Well, you're the Christ. And then Jesus goes on in, in uh, chapter 8, 30 and, and following. Jesus tells them that he must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. And Peter kind of comes along, and we know, we know from other references of, of Peter kind of being the big mouth of the disciples. He comes along, you know, Jesus, you don't really know your scriptures. You don't die. You don't suffer. You're the Messiah. You, you know, Jesus, learn your Old Testament a little bit better here. You're the Messiah. I recognize, I get it. You're the Messiah. You're going to reign. You're going to rule. You are going to kick some Roman butt. And Jesus, with his famous line, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Men have come up with this interpretation of the Old Testament, but this is not the way of God. And so Jesus goes on to teach about denying ourselves and taking up our cross. So let's continue. Uh, instead of going down that line of, of, of what Jesus is saying, let's continue to look at the disciples. You can flip over to, uh, to, to Mark chapter 10. 
James and John, uh, 10.30, what is it, 10.33-ish, somewhere around there. James, uh, James and John have the audacity, they approach Jesus. Uh, teacher, can you do it? Do whatever, uh, can you do whatever we ask? <laughs> Please. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do? In, uh, in 1037. Well, um, can, we, can we sit at your, your, one at the right and the other at your left in glory? Can we sit at your right hand? Hey, okay, you're the Messiah. We get it. Can we be second and third in command in the new kingdom? Jesus uh, goes on to say, well, those places are belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Now, I'm going to take a little aside here. James and John want to be at his right and his left in glory. If the cross is Jesus' glory, Jesus hanging on the cross, Who's to his right and to his left? A couple of criminals. A couple of uh, guys that were also rebelling against Rome. Just something to think about. Just a little aside there. So back to James and John. The others hear about their request. Hey, wait a second. James and John just went to Jesus and asked to be second and third. What about the rest of us? And they're kind of choked. And uh, so this is what Jesus has to do some teaching, is what he has to do. And he has to teach his disciples in, in, uh, in 1042. Uh, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials ex- exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, a reference to Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. Salty, the singing songbook, said that. If you want to be great... Anyways... Sorry, Lou. Um, Our worldly mentality is to be big, to be powerful, to seek greatness. Yet it can become a barrier to the kingdom of God. Small, like a seed, suffering, sacrificial. first barrier to the kingdom of God is the misunderstanding of the Jewish people of who the Messiah is, who they thought he was, who he was going to be, what is he like, was a barrier to them. The Messiah is not coming to overthrow earthly powers with military might. He is the king who comes riding on a donkey. He is the king who comes with a bowl and a towel and washes his disciples' feet. This is still a barrier for us today. Anytime we seek greatness for our own sake, or try to climb the ladders on the backs of others, it's an area that many of us need to repent. 
I'll uh, hopefully equally offend everyone here in the room. For young people, I hear this when I hear, hmm, I'm not working at that job. Fast food, restaurant, minimum wage. Hmm. Too good? From old people, I hear, well, I've put in my time doing that. And those in the middle, I hear, well, I'm not gifted at that. What's your that? I'm not doing that. You want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. There is one group that does not need to hear today's message. And so we dismiss them. They are exempt. They are the ones that are appropriately learning something else. They are children. Go back to chapter 9. The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Okay, this is back before it was James and John in chapter 10. But back in chapter 9, we get a bit more context that all the disciples are arguing about who's greatest. James and John are just the ones that actually had the guts to go and talk to Jesus about it more. So, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Uh, 9.35 to 37. Sitting down, this is the first lesson that Jesus had to teach. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he'd placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And then skipping ahead in in, uh, 10, chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, he has another little learning lesson about children. He says to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. I have a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. I know how much of a... This is just a parable. (laughs) This isn't actually what happens in the Weeds household. There's a lot that they could have to learn. But parable does hold true. Children in Jesus' day had no rights, no status. James and John, only a few verses later, what we read before, totally miss the point. They still want to be great. They do not want to be, enter the kingdom of God like children. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God Like a little child. I'm not going to answer that. It's a question for discussion. Something to email me about. What does that look like for you? So let me go back to the original suggestion that I had. Please, if you can find a couple hours somewhere, it will be of great value. Sit down. Read the whole Gospel of Mark. What does it mean to enter the kingdom of God like a child. I'd love to hear. Email me, please. I pray that you may have the eyes and ears to see and hear what God is saying and what God is doing. Blessings to you.
you're dismissed.